Welcome back to our continuing coverage of ATX Television Festival, day two. This is Paul. This is Caroline. This is the Friday of the event when people start coming in a little more than they were on Thursday. They're starting to take off work or arrive in time for the big reunion or premiere that's going to occur at, at night. This year happened to be a reunion show, but why don't we start with the morning's programming? They offered not necessarily tracks, but they did offer several panels simultaneously. So we had to kind of pick and choose what we wanted to watch. Additionally, with our press pass, we were given uh, a virtual pass, which is the low cost option for attending the fest. It's 50 bucks and you get access to not everything, but many things. We discussed the, the virtual option in our last episode, but you guys remember that this was a, like a hybrid thing that I used to actually give myself a break from all the peopling. I would go back to our room and I could watch some of the virtual panels. This is an all ages, very inclusive event. So, you know, if you had any reason why you had, you know, fatigue during the day, or if you just needed to take a break, or if you just, you know, for whatever reason, just are done being sitting shoulder to shoulder with someone else, you can definitely use this virtual pass. So this was something that we used for one of these panels called Beyond the Page. I'll read the description real quick. A showrunner slash writer's job does not end with the completion of a script or even the end of production. In fact, the writing process extends far beyond on the page as a script takes on new life on set and again in post-production so this discussion was with industry writers you could kind of tell like with the simultaneousness of the wga strike and atx having always catered to the creatives of the industry i mean yes they invite the, the pretty faces to come and it is flashy when you get to see the stars of your shows. But I would say that the creatives have outnumbered the on-screen talent two or three to one most years. I agree with that. And I think that that's what makes this festival special is because if you're a TV fan, not only do you want to know about the stars, but you are genuinely curious about how your favorite shows are made. And this was a really important panel, I think, for most of us to start to understand where the writers are coming from with the strike. And, you know, we're going to be very glossy about about what the topics were because we just have so many panels to share with you guys but generally what i learned from this was that you know in the past writers would write the show but then they would stick with the show through production and all the way through post-production including you know getting notes back daily or or weekly or whatever making changes maybe if a joke doesn't hit when they have a live audience then there's writers there on staff who can quickly you know change up the joke and try something else we know from having covered um, Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, that they actually show you the writers standing in the wings, like on the Gordon Ford show, if you guys watch that. So that's like a good indicator of like, those are the writers standing by just in case while the show is actually in production, they're needed for something, some clarification or to change the joke or to do something. These panelists were Gina Fattori. They list her most significant recent credits as a show called Dare Me and Californication. And then the other writer was Javier Grio Marchois. That is how you say it. That's a, it's definitely a mouthful for sure. We got to see Javier quite a few times in, in different panels, and he absolutely has such great 
depth of understanding of how things were in the industry, how things have changed because of streaming, and how this all affects the writers, most especially. He also has a great insight onto show running. He's done a lot of that. So And a podcast. Yeah, as well. <laughs> so the cool thing for me was to start to understand how things like residuals work, how streaming has changed, how, um, you know, when the writers are actually there. The fact that most shows let the writers, the writer room go before they even start production, which is so wild to me because, you know, having done our podcast with our set decorator, Beth Kushnick, we have a great deal of conversation about changes that are happening in real time. Like we have a production today and the writers wrote in a Jeep. We don't have a Jeep, you know, or like whatever they wrote in, you know, uh, the person falling over a chair. Now we got to go get a chair. Like there's things that were happening. So in my mind, writers were still there actively writing as things were in production. But what we were told and how it's been explained now to us is that no, for the most part, maybe a writer is left around to try to fill in any blanks. But for the most part, to save money, they let the, all the writers go. And instead of working however many, you know, 22 episodes or even 10 episodes, their time is shut down to maybe a week or two worth of work, which is really difficult. Now, a lot of this stuff, again, we've picked up through a bunch of panels because this discussion was happening like ongoing throughout the weekend and certainly has been going on amongst us podcasters and people who care about this industry. For you, Paul, was there anything new or different that you picked up? Especially, I know you enjoy writing yourself, even though if it's not something for entertainment like TV, but what did you feel like that you understood about what the writers were going through or like how this is more than just the job of writing that initial script? What I did not understand about TV production before this ATX and everything having to do with the WGA strike and then this panel was the role of writers beyond the room and then the extent to which they have been made disposable by their um, employers. I kind of understood the idea of, well, if a joke doesn't land or something like that, that someone's got to be there to fix it. Most actors will kind of readily agree, whether they want to or not, that they need someone to write it for them. Mm -hmm. And it's very few that can just riff and, and, and just improve things ad lib, you know? Absolutely. And so that the primary writers, the credited writers are are basically hired what would you call that work for hire almost where they just come in write and then boom you're done and not be around for production mm -hmm. was a new idea to me i didn't know that that's the way that they were being treated that it sounded like maybe a like you said a writer or it even sounded like a less experienced kind of uncredited writer mm -hmm. might be there to fit to kind of cock the seams you know during production but that was it. And so two things come of that, that, that were brought to our attention over the course of this festival. And now again, this wasn't all in just this one panel, but I feel like it's important to just have this conversation. So the two parts to that were residuals that we've learned about and the idea that like, no, they weren't being given residuals in the same way because there's no like reruns when it comes to streaming. And so in that case, like a job that could have held you over with residuals to your next job now suddenly doesn't exist anymore. So you don't have that like in between pay. 
way. And then additionally, they talked a lot about the lack of mentoring for a writer to become a showrunner, because since they're not on set when the production's actually happening and they're not having an opportunity to grow and see how the showrunning portion actually works, that we're not sort of home growing our own showrunners. People are coming in as a showrunner, having had no experience in the writer's room or having had limited experience. And then if you're a writer, you're supposed to have a career ladder to be able to run a show eventually, you know, if that's your path. And that ladder seems to have disappeared because you're no longer there during the production phase. There was a lot of issues um, that were being addressed in this that, you know, were very thought provoking and gave me a much better insight. And that's the cool thing about these panels, right? I mean, I feel like we learned a lot. I mean, our next one, Shark Tank, I feel like I learned a lot more about the individual sharks, but then also the process. Just by virtue of timing and things, our next panel was called, We Have a Deal Inside the Business of Shark Tank, presented by Sony Pictures. And they did bring both creatives and on-screen quote unquote talent in this case, because these are real people. These are, these are real, real business people. Yeah. Uh, Mark Cuban, Damon John and Kendra Scott were there representing their brands and their roles as sharks. Kendra Scott being a guest shark of more recent yeah. fame than uh, Mark Cuban and Damon John. Then they also brought Clay Newbill, Yoon Lingner and Justin Fenchel, who was one of their success stories that they wanted to brag about, who is a, an alcoholic beverage, what would you call that, product? Entrepreneur. Yes, entrepreneur, there you go. <laughs> yeah, so we learned a lot about it. I mean, the actual behind the scenes nuts and bolts of how the show works, like things like they get 20,000 applications a year, they listen to like a thousand pitches, there's been 14 seasons. The producers listen to all of them. Yeah. They, they go through all of them. It the, was impressive, really. Yeah. I mean, you know, they talked a lot about what was the show's popularity and that everybody has a business idea and that these particular sharks, the investors are self-made really intrigues a lot of these entrepreneurs and they really want to get in there. You know, what was interesting to me was there seemed to be the way that they were talking, the producers were saying one thing and the, and the sharks were saying uh, uh, something else. It was that, well, yeah, it was, it seemed to be that the producers were saying, we are picking things that we think will make good TV. Sharks were saying things like, we are picking things that will make actual <laughs> businesses. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, kind of like America's Funniest Home Videos or, you know, one of those one of those types of shows in a way there there like has to be those ones that are like the filler you know like so you have the ones that are like the gems right that these are the these are the ones that the sharks are going to fight over but you've got to throw in like the squirrel you know onesie uh, you know or whatever you're gonna you have to throw in something to kind of have just a little bit of variety and i think kind of that zaniness that comes with it which certainly there's some entrepreneurs that come on and their pitches are crazy at the same time you know i think that we got to learn a lot about the the sharks themselves, which was interesting to me because they were very different in person than they were on TV. Like to me, I'm going to talk about Cuban first. I know you want to talk about Damon. You know, for me, he is he is the shark that most of them are seeking to get a deal with, partially because he is very much one of the most successful ones up there. But also he seems to understand how to market and get out there. And he already has like these built in systems, like if it's something for sports equipment or something, I mean, he already has a place to implement that. He was a, an interesting person. Now, to me, he was why they brought the producer. <laughs> because he just spoke off the cuff. 
he just said stuff and he was saying great stuff. I mean, he was like, you know, they were sharing stuff like Barbara goes nuts if you burp. So they would like do <laughs> antiquey stuff, you know, or, you know, he was he he really kept the show going himself. He really wanted to make sure that it was a family friendly show. He was the one that like he was just supposed to be a guest to come on. He recognized the power of the show and that this was like something that, you know, that the American dream is alive and well and anyone could come from anywhere and succeed. And I don't know, he just he had both this mix of like a positive uh, message, but also he was really much more loose and fun and chatty than I expected him to be. I kind of thought maybe he'd be kind of reserved or whatever, but he wasn't to the point where the producer would like talk over him. <laughs> like, cause <laughs> they were talking about someone and he was like, that dude, that dude was weird. Right. Like they were saying <laughs> stuff like that. And then, and then the producer would be like, he was a wonderful man. Yeah, and like, he said, like, yeah, he's an exceptional person. Yeah. Right? Like immediately damage control. <laughs> Like right away. But that's the cool thing about ATX and these panels is that like Cuban didn't come there to be fake. Like he came to say his experience on the show and he did. And this and it came out like dude was weird. You know? yeah, yeah. So that's funny. I know Damon really struck a chord with you. Well, on TV, he is playing Damon, the businessman. He's going to protect his family, his investment, his business. And so he is not there to fool around and so he comes off i wouldn't say cold but reserved i would say calculating can i say that that's you how he comes off that? to me he comes off calculating like he he and i mean as they all should be but he has to he does like a lot of like like is that what you're offering and like like comparing offers on the panel though he was highly complimentary of Cuban in that sort of, there's a YouTube channel that I watch sometimes called Charisma on Command, which for people that don't have it is a way to learn how to be charismatic. Wow. And, and some of those tricks- All secret sauce. Some of those tricks in, include kind of giving, not backhanded compliments, but but sort of hiding compliments in a way where, where it shows that you do actually admire the person without laying it on too thick. And that's, that's what Damon did a couple times in this panel by giving Cuban credit for saving the show, being a great partner on on stage when they're working, keeping the show going during the pandemic, which was a great story. Oh yeah, you can tell. They wanted to find a way to keep the show going, but no one had a way to do that. And it was time to decide, are we going to do the show or not? Like Damon gives Cuban all the credit and then Cuban starts to tell the story. And he's like, I don't know. I didn't do that much. I just knew a guy that had a hotel and I thought that we could <laughs> use the hotel since no one else was there. And Damon's like, the hotel was the Venetian in Las Vegas. <laughs> so the way that he says, I knew a guy that had a hotel. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he was like, he, he definitely was like, but at the same time, he wasn't like, he wasn't like self aggrandizing you know, like he was like, yeah, I just I asked a friend, you know, and it's one of those things where it, he lives in a different world, obviously, from the rest of us. And but he wasn't afraid or shy to use his connections to help the show. And that was like really what everyone was saying on the panel was like, Cuban really is the one who keeps like pulling strings and making things happen. When you hear that, I wouldn't encourage you to hear because he wants to be on TV. Oh, I, would, I would encourage you no. to, to think of keeping all of those crew members working mm -hmm. through a time when that was a very unsure thing for TV production. And they got to work 
earlier than other shows. They figured out how to do, how to work around. I mean, they had a system where when they brought in entrepreneurs, they had to come alone. They came by car and they had to quarantine, quarantine for two weeks in the hotel prior to being on the show. And then when they finally got their turn, they got to go to the elevator, ride the elevator up to the studio. And when they came out, there were the sharks waiting for them. So yeah. you saw no one for two weeks. <laughs> And then, boom. All I, kept, all I kept thinking to myself is how much you could spin out in those two weeks. That's what I kept thinking. Was because one of the things that it was Justin, right, who was the, um, the success story. Yeah. And so when he's talking about all the preparation they did for it, all the over-preparing they did for it, how many times they practiced their pitch, how many times he studied his own body language. Like he videotaped himself and then watched his own body language to see if he had anything negative that was going to be like... You you know, radiating out to the the judges. And I thought, my God, if you're alone for two weeks, you'd be in, you'd either be doing your pitch like 24 seven, just talking to yourself in the mirror, like a crazy person right. or like rocking in the corner. Like, like, I'm gonna, I can do it. You can do it. Like, to me, I feel like that that whole setup was so bizarre. I also felt like when they were describing all the different types of entrepreneur businesses and the, the products that the producers had to taste, my favorite was when he was like saying, one of the producers said that they drank something that made him have a nosebleed. <laughs> Because it was like something that someone was pitching. And so the producers, like Paul said, they try out all the products. They listen to all the pitches. They make their own decisions about things first because they want it to be entertaining and, and exciting for us viewers. And the idea that, oh, my, could you guys even imagine like like Mark Cuban or Damon or somebody like drinking that and like actively on TV, like having a nosebleed, like how insane, which here's the thing. They discussed that they had like a live episode that went on as well. This was a little bit uh, interesting, I guess. Or it was, I don't know. I kind of want to say it was odd because in one way they were saying like how completely realistic it is and you see everything and these are like real deals and all that kind of stuff. However, they would also say that they would spend like several hours grilling the entrepreneur. And of course we don't see that. No, It gets just chopped down to like 10 minutes. So in one way it's realistic, but in another way, I no, mean, the live show they described this... like a circus stunt almost. Right. Because the live show, they couldn't ask the questions. They couldn't do all the, the, the due diligence. But the thing is the idea that in regular shows, the taped shows that they really do talk to those people for several hours standing there. I was like, Holy smokes. I mean, like I could understand if after the fact, some of those deals fall apart because they go and they start digging because right in the moment, right? They're just like taking at face value what this person says right, their yeah. business is like. But, you know, if you go and you find out it's really like in their shed in the backyard, not a factory, like they said, then things fall apart. But yeah, overall, this was a great panel. I'm glad that they brought out some completely different people. This felt very fresh to me because I, I think that ATX tends to stick to kind of certain shows that we yeah. we watch and this one in particular i think like stuck out as like yeah i want to know more about how they make that type of show so this was great behind the scenes and getting to know the personalities of the show our next panel was one that we watched virtually you watched more of it than i did it was called artificial intelligence and us mm. the panelists included an actor from the show upload but then also um dr amelia javorsky who is a person right now trying to create a pause button on the development of AI so that they can put in the guardrails 
during the usage of AI because they know that they can't really stop it, but they but she believes it'll it can reach a point where it gets out of hand, and without the guardrails in place, then there will be problems later on. And she was thrilled that her petition had a thousand signatures at that point that she was talking about, including Elon Musk. And she's a part of a much larger organization. It wasn't just her individually, but that was that was her stance on AI. There was also two other panelists. A showrunner named Elena Smith, who created and runs the show Dickinson. And then also we had Javier Griot Marchois, who has writing credits ranging from Lost to Cowboy Bebop and the Dark Crystal show on Netflix. So they all had different takes on AI. Obviously, you know, we we spoke about the pause button. Um, I would say that the upload actor, um, you know, just didn't didn't add too much to the conversation because honestly, the other two panelists, the the woman who created Dickinson and Javier, had a lot to say, and they had very differing opinions. I would say that um, the creator of Dickinson was coming from the approach that she herself hadn't created any original content for the show, meaning she was using sources of Dickinson's um, biography. She was using pieces of work. She was using uh, historical information of the time. She cared a lot about the traditions of the 19th century. So that was like where she was like getting a lot of her information. And so she was really feeling like very threatened by AI because she basically had had kind of been the physical version of AI in going out and going through all of this information and then culling through it and creating Dickinson. And she felt very, I would, I would say threatened that, that um, she just kept saying like, it can't, it can't happen. It can't, it just can't do it. It can't, it won't be able to write a rom-com. Like it just won't understand. Right. And, and the more she actually she, shat on people. She said, yeah. she said, Oh, I, I bet it can probably do like a Marvel movie or oh, a James yeah. Bond movie. That went a little but poorly. I don't think it could do something really creative or something along those yeah, lines. That went pretty badly because I would say that the majority of fans in the audience were like, huh? Well, Javier's credits are all genre. They are. And and he is, again, very steeped in knowledge and understanding about how a lot of this is all working in the industry. So he was very quick to come back and say, like, hey, listen, first of all, yes, AI is absolutely going to be able to write a rom-com. Like, get your head out of the sand, basically. And when, he, when he rebutted, yeah. did you notice that he moved to the opposite side of his stool? He did. Yeah. There was a lot of talking about body language. <laughs> he definitely, like, physically hung off the side of his stool away from away from her uh, as the other panelists. No, here's the thing. Her point was understood by the majority of us in that there was like a wicked desperation of like, please, please, please tell me that this machine cannot replace creativity, cannot replace. Essentially, she was feeling, you know, very personal about this, like my personal talent of being able to take things and create something else out of these source materials. She was very unnerved by the idea that a machine could do the same thing. And Javier was like, you need to get over yourself and get over the idea of not being able to believe it. Like whenever you get to the part where you say, okay, I believe it. Now we can all move forward, you know, but like, you can't stay in this limbo of like, this is just crazy. It just can't happen. It can't happen. You know, like just kind of holding your head, like, no, tell me it isn't true. Well, it's not that she didn't understand. Not understand. The technology. She got it. She understood it. She just didn't want it to be so. Yeah. That's more like it. Yeah. yeah. And that was what he was kind of saying. Like, you can keep saying this machine can't do this, but we're all telling you it can. 
and also it will. So Javier's suggestion was like, get on board and figure out how to work with it. Use it as a tool and not be afraid of it, but also don't hide from it. Don't think that we're going to be able to put it back in the box or that in any way people are going to like forget about it or dismiss it. He was also in favor of augmenting AI results with what he called what like the receipts because we know that ai doesn't make new things it just compiles so many old things mm -hmm. that when it shows us something that we've never seen it's new to us but it's actually an, an amalgamation of previously thought ideas right but that's where the dickinson creator was feeling so bristly because she admitted nothing she used, she created herself. She didn't write what the 19th century was like. She just collected the information, same as AI. So she was like indignant that this AI can't do what she does. But I'm telling you, it's not that she didn't believe AI could do it. She just didn't want to believe it. Yeah. Like this was taking her profession out from under her and it was desperate. Like, and I don't mean that in an ugly way. I mean it like I have complete compassion for her. I feel that way. I was a public school teacher. I will not go back to being a public school teacher because my job has utterly disappeared as the job that I once knew. And so for me, I understand feeling upset that like these things are coming in and trying to act like they can substitute for your creativity, your originality. It's upsetting. One of the things that Javier brought up that I think is really fascinating and and it could be done. So I don't I, I hope it is. Basically, if you are going to use AI and, and you're going to say, you know, whatever, make the Dickinson show, right? Then at the end of the thing that it shows you, whatever the script is, it should include essentially a bibliography. It should include all the different sources of where you got this information. For one, so that the person, the human who is in charge of this project can read through it and see was any of this fake news? Was any of this like a, a website that's not reliable, right. right? And also though, was there anyone within this chain of information here that deserves some money, some residuals for whatever part that they played? Like if you got 90% of your Dickinson information from one source on the internet, well, might the person who wrote that article deserve a couple bucks for having helped you create Dickinson because this is where you got it from? Like it's that was kind of his comment was like, if we would just start showing receipts, if we could create and he was saying a third party software. So not that the actual like chat GPT or something would give you the results, but that there would be a, a third party software that you knew was like independent and would be honest about where did this information and material come from? Again, this allows creators to get paid, artists to get paid. You know, everybody along the line could get some money off of that if then a product is sold. You could tell that he came to this thing prepared and he had a yes. couple things that he wanted to say, whereas the Dickinson showrunner felt more reactive. So like another point that he wanted to raise was the grim future that unless there are these guardrails and he supported the idea of guardrails. I don't think he thought that the pause button was realistic, but he did agree that trying to get out ahead of this as an industry is a smart idea because he could foresee a future where the studio tells chat GPT, make me a script. It does. Mm -hmm. And then up and coming writers, that is their job is editing that output 
rather than creating something new. He thinks that would be a horrible future for the industry, creativity, humanity, but, Americans, everything. Specifically, though, how they were would be paid for that. Oh, it would because, be much less. Right. Because if you were simply editing, and I'm using my air quotes here, if you were simply editing a pre-written script, you would get paid less than if you had been the originator. Right. Yeah. So this was a whole issue. I felt like what Javier was sharing with us, as opposed to the Dickinson creator, in my mind, I, I kind of, I'm compared to baseball or something, right? And you have this like amazing pitcher who can now pitch like 100 miles an hour. You can be someone standing around the dugout being like, I can't believe it. It can't be done. It can't be done. You can't throw it 100 miles an hour. No, it can't be done. It can't be done. Or as Javier is saying, prepare yourself you know get a glove that can catch a hundred mile an hour fastball or get a bat that can hit one because like the idea of just thinking well i, I it's just never gonna happen is foolishness and you have while we don't have time to stop it we have time to prepare and time to kind of create a mindset of okay how do i use this tool and how do i keep this tool in its place so that it doesn't become the end all be all. It's not like, and this script was created by AI and no humans are even mentioned. So that was a, it was a great panel. It was something that I think that, you know, again, we were just continuing the conversation of how writers work and, and what are the, the obstacles for them. Similar thread. We went to a micro panel called burn it down live and in person. This one also featured Javier Griot-Marchois, as well as Melinda Shoe-Taylor and Mo Ryan, the author of a recent book, I mean, super recent, like came out a week ago, called Burn It Down, Power, Complicity, and a Call for Change in Hollywood. This is an examination of all of the bad habits that have come to a head in Hollywood relating to race and gender and how those things play out in powerful positions with regard to running TV shows. And I want to be very cautious about saying like phrases like bad habits, because what they were really talking about was severe mistreatment of people and huge amounts of discrimination and prejudice. Right. I don't want to downplay it. Yeah, right. Yeah. And we definitely don't want to downplay it. So Mo Ryan is the author of the book and was leading the panel. And she definitely had, you know, uh, difficult sort of news to share with us, I guess, in terms of the content of the book discussing writers rooms and most especially the lost writer room because that was something that what had been put out in vanity fair uh, just a couple days prior to atx and so a lot of people had read it and it really revealed some unsettling information about what was going on in the writer's room, how people felt, how how badly people were treated, and just the, the covering up of it, that it was swept under the rug is like not even the right word because no one was even at the place of like whistleblowing. Like nobody was even trying to stop it from happening exactly. Right. Because I guess it seemed like it was like there was nothing anyone could do. It was a sad panel because you could tell that Mo herself just was really disappointed and sad to have to share what she had discovered in investigating these different stories. I have read about, I would say, seven-eighths of the book by this point. And the theme with writing it is not some, like, drudge report, gleeful expose of people she has a grudge against and and wants to uh, ruin their lives. That is not the tone 
of the book or the tone of this panel, like Caroline just described, she was actually physically diminished and sad delivering this news because to an extent she felt complicit in propping up certain people, certain things, and having spent a whole career doing that and wondering if she had wasted her life, basically. That, that was her exact quote, actually. She she felt like, you know, was, was, did she go down the wrong path in even wanting to cover this industry because she's realizing, you know, how much, how many bad things were going on and how she was writing stories simultaneously about those situations, not knowing that things were going so badly behind the scenes. So, I mean, we, we very much encourage you guys to read the book. Paul's listening to it right now on Audible. You know, go check it out. Um, it's it's one of those things that opens your eyes, makes you ask questions. We loved Lost. It was a show that we loved very much. I do think this taints the show for me. Certainly, I look at a lot of the things that happen, especially with like the character of Michael. Um, and we learned a lot more about that. Just difficult, difficult to listen to. If you've ever watched uh, 30 Rock and you've seen that writer's room, you watch that and you think, this is meant to be an example of all the worst things just jammed into one thing. But when you read the book, you start to realize, no, that was all of them. That was really most writer's rooms operated in a way very similar to that. Just a fraternity type atmosphere that made it hard for people that weren't fraternal, if you will. Well, and just to, not a white man. That's basically it. I mean, if you weren't a white man, I think that you were like under fire no matter what. I mean, some of this stuff, I mean, you guys, I'll just give you this one. They referred to one of the writers simply as Korean. Like Korean, go do this or Korean, go do that. I mean, what the hell? I mean, stuff like that. It's just it blows your mind. And I understand it was 20 years ago and all that kind of stuff. But uh, it, it it makes my stomach sick. And, and I'm and for you guys who are listening to us, I really want to emphasize the feeling of Mo Ryan, the feeling that I got. I'm really hoping that we get to interview her at some point because I really want to talk to her about the toll that take that writing this book and that actually doing the research and having to hear the stories you could tell that she like internalized those stories and had like such massive empathy for the people who were going through things like it i think it took pieces off of her you know like it, it took away something from her well, we had seen her interview uh damon lindelof who was the showrunner of lost but also since then has run the leftovers the watchman and Mrs. Davis, each one of those experiences, it seems like he has made some corrective step in what he feels like would help him and his shows become more well-rounded by adding underrepresented people in the writer's room for each one of those shows. But Lost was his first show running rodeo. Mm -hmm. And in the whole book, she has to use a lot of aliases, and she, but she still has to call out a lot of scenarios. And so far in the whole book, he is the only person that she got a firsthand response from in terms of trying to not defend, but explain his, his position. Like he's the only one out of whatever she talked about 
that responded without going through a lawyer or some other thing. And, and that's the thing. Like, so other people like Carlton Hughes was like one is the other showrunner for, for loss, like went through like a PR person, went through like a lawyer, those types of things. Like other people did respond, but they responded through representation and not through, not just talking to her directly. So, I mean, there's something to be said for that. I mean, certainly I, I think that it's something that is sad. It's just super sad to hear as a fan. And I think that was the, the thing about that panel, like, I feel like a lot of people walked out kind of shoulders slumped because it was like, man, you know, that was hard to hear, hard to learn. And it's just not something you want to, you want to know, you know, necessarily. And it's important for us to know because we want to support the shows that are treating everyone, talent, writers, crew, everybody, everybody should be treated well. You know, we don't want anyone to be treated crummy. So we do want to know as fans, but at the same time, God, it's so depressing when you hear. Well, that's part of the point of the book is that many of the most revered, loved shows were run in this destructive way. It's kind of a question mark is that we do believe that quality entertainment can be created with more equitable situations in, in the writing room, behind the camera, in front of the camera, all that. But we don't know yet. <laughs> we just We just think so. We know that this horrible condition made The Sopranos, The Wire, Lost, very loved shows. She's contesting that that can't be the only way to make good TV. You don't want to know how the sausage is made. And it's kind of like that. Like when you start to hear how it's made, you're like, Ugh. I don't that's not very appetizing at all. And maybe if it's sort of like that and people start to care, like, how is this made? Like, hang on a second. Where did this come from? Who's in charge of this? You know, maybe there will be a little bit more care taken in those in, in that maybe those in charge of things like a writer's room, even if this is the only thing that keeps them under control, if they simply know People are asking questions now. People want to know how people are being treated behind the camera. And in that case, I best keep myself together. Now, I don't want that to be the reason. I want them to just be nice people. But if they need some sort of leash to, to yank on to say, like, no, act right. If that has to be the audience saying, we're not going to watch your show if you're going to treat everybody like crap. Treat people nicely or else. I'm willing to be one of those audience members to say, treat everyone nice or I don't want to watch your show. The book has a lot to say about that kind of stuff and the progress being made for like independent reporting, you know, or, yeah. or anonymous reporting. Who's who's doing that? How that's being done? Like so, like there are efforts by the different guilds. There's efforts by studios, which she doesn't believe in that much but the guilds she does believe in i appreciated that javier brought it up and i and in this panel and i think in a couple of the other panels this call for professionalism from javier that definitely he wanted to see radiate all the way down to like the student films and that's something that mo brought up too with like when like safety and just protocols that just are meant to keep everyone healthy and and safe are being abandoned because professionalism isn't put as like the number one thing. No, and cost savings is. Right. And so they were saying even even trickling down to like the, you know, student films, they wanted a call for, for more professionalism, for having these standards, for having a bar set, including having resources for, for like indie films and student films. Um, they were talking about a fund that that could actually be used to like pay for like a safety person on set and or even first aid kits and stuff like that, that like there was access to money because they recognized that a lot of the reasons why some of these things go so badly 
is a, is cost cutting stuff. Somebody yeah. has cut the cost and now people are getting screamed at because one person is doing the job of 10 people, you know, because they cut those people. Well, she cites in her book that with the advent of the golden age of TV and peak TV and the increase of production representing, say, whatever percentage from the previous iteration of, of TV, that the rate at which people are getting hurt or dying on set has not grown at the same rate. It has grown faster, hmm. meaning that those cost-cutting measures are resulting in people getting hurt at an unreasonable rate that doesn't match what they're making. And that's something that I think people aren't talking about. Like even, you know, we're talking about treatment in the writer's room, but I mean, we're talking much bigger than that too. Like not, not just emotional and mental abuse, which is horrible, but also this physical element of people really getting injured and, and killed. So very interesting read. Definitely recommend go check out Burn It Down by Mo Ryan. Following Mo's really deep topical panel, I attended one of ATX's more typical show-based panels for a short show called Accused. I mostly went because they had some unusual cast members that were going to be there. They had Whitney Cummings, the comedian, Betsy Brandt, who you probably know as um, Hank's wife from Breaking Bad, and then an, uh, an actor who I didn't know named Ian Anthony Dale. Accused is a show um, from a producer named Howard Gordon, who he has produced shows like The X-Files, all of the 24 iterations, and, um, and as well as Homeland. So that's nine years of Homeland after intermixed, I guess, with 24. And so the concept with Accused is that it's an anthology crime drama okay mostly when you think of anthologies you probably think of either like horror or mm -hmm. American science fiction horror story is like my number one probably first thought well and well yes or say twilight zone even because this is mm. episodically an anthology so like black mirror yeah you know, something okay. like that and uh so when the stories are built they just need the actors to come in and play their one episode and then they're gone and so that's what they came in to talk about was that setup. And since they didn't have the creatives with them, they mostly talked about casting and and um, their characters. And they kind of commented on each other's shows. Uh, Whitney Cummings is is actually one of those comedians that is funny in real life, as opposed to others that we have seen uh, at ATX that are supposed to be funny and are totally not. Well, in no way would I isolate ATX as like, uh, like finding someone who's not funny who's supposed to be. I mean, that's true of like every live event. I feel like this is this is a conversation we had in day one where I was like, I don't want to meet anybody in person who, if I love their character, because chances are they don't have the same personality as said character. So even with stand-up comedians, it's the same kind of thing. Like they're not on stage. They're not necessarily hilarious. But she was. Very funny. And yeah, so they talked about that show and, and I got some great pictures with that. I got to sit right up in the front row in the press seating. So that was terrific. Definitely make sure if you guys get a chance, go over to um, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram um, at Pod Clubhouse and check out all the photos that Paul took throughout this entire event. There's lots of great, great pictures that honestly were retweeted by people on the panel because they, they turned out so well. Thanks. We 
intended on sending me over to the cruel summer panel to get some pictures there but man it had already been sort of a long day it felt like even <laughs> though we'd been to only a couple of things well and that that's the thing like i think some of this stuff actually kind of took a lot out of us the the mo ryan panel absolutely like i went back to the room and was like you know what i'm gonna go and like collect my thoughts a little bit about this you go to accused i'm gonna watch some virtual stuff that i might have missed the day before for our final event that we decided to do for the evening was the big one that we were very excited Excited about. We told you in the previous podcast that Ted Danson and Mary Steenburgen were standing right outside when we came and pulled up at the Driscoll. And so this was going to be the night when we got to see Ted Danson in all his glory with George Went and John Ratzenberger and creators, James Burroughs, Les Charles and Glenn Charles. If you've seen Cheers, then you have undoubtedly seen their names listed as the creators of the show. I feel like if you've watched any television, you have have seen names like James Burroughs like all over the place. James Burroughs was on the following day awarded an ATX's basically lifetime achievement award that they've given to other people like Michael J. Fox and Henry Winkler. Norman Lear. Norman Lear, right. Mm -hmm. If you're thinking, where have I seen James Burroughs names before? Well, it might be on shows like Taxi, Frasier, or Will and Grace. Cheers or so many. He he is, I guess, considered like a maestro of multicam live in front of a studio audience. Like sitcoms specifically. Specifically sitcoms, exactly. Which he right. was really interesting to listen to about that because he had a lot of opinions about today's sitcoms and what's going on with them and why there's a severe lack of them. It was fascinating. Again, $50 for the virtual pass if you guys want to go and watch this and you can actually see every comment that he um, has to say. But I thought that the interaction between him and then the Charles brothers, oh my God, and he called them the boys. Which is hilarious. Because they're so, you guys, they they're older men. James Burroughs is like in his 80s. In his 80s, yeah. And the boys are like in their 70s. And it was just so cute to see them be so sweet to one another, so respectful, so encouraging, supportive, wanting to like lift each other up. Like this entire panel, like they all talked great stories and we're gonna tell you a couple of them but they also were like so cute with each other i mean they called james jimmy and called ted danson teddy and johnny and all that like it was so familiar and intimate and endearing i was absolutely in love with them as the actual humans that they were not just their characters which is not always the case for caroline that's right we have been to other cast reunions before of varying quality and and size so we had been to gilmore girls battlestar galactica um, the leftovers the leftovers we had been to ugly betty Mm -hmm. the americans so a lot we have seen where it, it's flashy you know to bring the entire cast however when you have so many people on stage and only a 45 minute slot that you give them but not even that was one of the things that i do have like a little bit of a question mark i and i don't know and maybe someone in the industry cares to shoot us a, a you know a, a dm or something on twitter or what have you i don't know exactly why they keep the interview portion with the panel so short i mean mm. 
we were there and we got to watch they did a script reading of the pilot uh which was fine they they had a variety of actors and stuff like that i don't know that i needed that personally and i thought maybe because when they said that the pilot hadn't played in 41 years like that was like the original run of it 41 years i was like whoa i think it would have behooved them to just play the pilot the real pilot because to me you needed to be introduced to some of these characters or reminded of some of these characters so to have them do a script reading i don't think was as impactful because if you were there because of nostalgia you didn't want to see anyone else play those parts and if you were there because you sort of knew the show but you didn't really know everyone well, it wasn't very helpful to see other actors read those parts then you know it's like it wasn't introducing you to the show any more than you already were i didn't love that portion i did enjoy the live piano player that they had when he played the theme song i am not a person who really loves it when you're there for one event and then they sidetrack you into something else <laughs> so we were there very much for the cheers reunion specifically with the actors and creators so when they allowed the piano player to play like two original songs and then you have this script reading with all these different people that have nothing to do with cheers it was like please will you get to the main event will you please bring ted dancing out already like you have had us sitting here for a good amount of time remember and fnl on the field yes when they had um they were gonna play crucifictorious's right set list but before that they had this other Austin, like a warm-up band opening but they had a full set it wasn't just right. like a couple of which songs, some people i i imagine all originals right and which uh, if you guys haven't met caroline i really feel like audiences enjoy a lot of covers if they're not coming to hear you like you are literally just there because you're opening up for someone else play a couple covers for us we'll all get excited you'll like hype up the crowd we'll sing along because we know your songs but when you get up there and you start singing about your mom or something i'm just telling you this has nothing to do with cheers and i'm not interested you know like i just don't care so for me I don't need that extra stuff. I don't really want that extra stuff. But for some people, I understand that that's bringing like value add to this ticket, right? Because you could have just purchased a Cheers reunion ticket. Yeah. And there were some people who did that, who were not a part of the festival. They simply saw that there was a Cheers reunion in Austin. And so they came for just that. Another cool aspect of ATX is you can buy like individual events like that. Again, if you're one of them and you come in here and you have these people who, again, you've got no context for these actors who now have just come out and start reading the script. I mean, I feel like you'd be like, what am I doing here? And then to have the piano players start playing originals i'd be like no seriously what are we doing here finally when he started to play the cheers theme song my heart swelled the entire audience started singing along tears were filling up in my eyes and to actually watch all those men walk out I, I mean, it was like so many grandpas and they were so cute and so like warm and open. Like they told all kinds of stories, which I promise you would tell. And we definitely will. Like I was alluding to before, they only had three cast members in times past. I have, we have seen where they bring out the entire cast and we'll have, we'll see character or actors that we like end up saying a sentence right? and then going back home. Like team Logan. And then that's it. That's it. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, again, I my original question that I don't think I actually spit out was, I don't know if there's some sort of time constraint 
or something to do with like contracts or something that says like they can only be on stage for 20 minutes or something like that. I don't know. Because the way that they do the the little or at least this year, it really felt like that the panel section such little amount of time was left for the panel for this and for righteous gemstones which we're going to talk to you about in our next podcast both of them i was like we have two hours and based on what they have planned and you can see it all listed out there's only 15 minutes for the actual actors part like how did this happen that's one thing that i would definitely pay attention to or at least expect if you're coming to one of these events and a reunion event or whatever they seem to be trying to kind of layer having like almost an opening act a musical act and then something with the panel seems to be what they're doing Mm -hmm. so again just heads up if you're planning on coming next year if they decide to stick with this format this is what to expect so what were some of your favorite moments on this panel seeing the actors act like themselves um john ratzenberger does not have the heavy Bostonian put on accent that Cliff Clavin has. And I don't know if it's uh, old age or, or George went actually had more of an accent mm-hmm. as George went than he did as Norm. Okay. Um, at least that's what I thought. Yeah. Okay. Um, they had such an easy rapport amongst them that I loved. And right. they had said, James had said that they actually had spent the day together. Like the six of them had spent the entire day together, like catching up and talking to one another, which I think helped tremendously because rather than them all just coming off of like airplanes from different parts of the world and sitting down together and having to be like, man, I haven't seen you in forever. They were already kind of like pre-lubed up you know like they were ready to tell stories they were ready to talk about their time together and they were very complimentary of each other especially um the the cast members that weren't there like Rhea Perlman and Shelley Long uh Kirstie Alley and uh Woody Harrelson I think if they could have <laughs> if they could have snatched Woody Harrelson for this one that would have been a huge get because of the rapport between the men so yeah. like I mean I would have loved to see Woody but I didn't expect to see Woody in any way but because of how much it seemed like he was a part of their stories and a part of the shenanigans that went on to me it felt like we we were missing like the fourth guy you know who who like was a part of their shenanigans well most most amusingly was that when he joined the cast after the after the actor who played coach died they attempted to haze him as the new guy apparently everything they tried woody was their better whether it was playing games like board games or basketball basketball or chess they mentioned just whatever they thought that they could do to try to arm best. wrestling right they said their arm the one arm was still hurt from arm wrestling like he was better at everything than they were but also a guy they like to be around and uh late the the next day actually ted um told us that he and woody are are probably going to put together a podcast of some kind so even though they may not be in each other's orbits you know every day of the year like they used to be there is still a lot of affection there and they do still hang around like mary steenburgen mentioned that she meets these friends and she was on a first name basis with woody and you know that yeah, that hangs level. out with them yeah so i'm gonna i'm gonna throw out some kind of like quick just like stories i'm gonna be kind of rapid fire about this because i know we've already had you guys for an hour so some people were asking things like what were they actually drinking instead of beer and it turns out that it this was is gross warm flat and salty near beer 
gross. Um, one of their favorite pastimes was to do spitballs with all those like straws and straw wrappers and whatnot. So there's times when you can actually watch scenes and see like spitballs coming in from like the sides of the screen, including George's favorite was when he did a spitball directly on the uvula of Ted Danson <laughs> while he was making some sort of spiel. So super funny. That was awesome. They were telling us about how Woody is a vegetarian and he had apparently awful gas you guys because he was like all about the fiber <laughs> and the roughage so he would come right up to people and stare into your eyes and like let out some like silent but deadly farts <laughs> and just look at you in the eyes as it would like wash over you and just smile <laughs> He sounds hilarious. Another story they told us about was that uh, they had gotten Chinese food and it turned out that there was pork in it. And, and Woody is a vegetarian again. So they had to kind of sit and talk about it for a minute. And he's like, you know what? I think I have to purge. Like, I don't think I can leave this in my system. So he went to the bathroom and <laughs> and Ted and George, they, they all were like, we should we should like right. in solidarity do this with him <laughs> and then they were all warning us of of the pitfalls of laughing and barfing at the same time you should try to avoid it was the moral <laughs> of that story yeah it was very funny and they were very cute just the report together was just wonderful i just really love it for james burroughs i i loved when he was telling the story that all four daughters and his grandkids they all want to sit around and watch cheers with him and that it like actually brings like tears to his eyes when he gets to do it and that he cherishes the show and that it will always be his fifth child. And when asked, will there be a reboot on that one? He said, absolutely not. No one will touch cheers ever. And this is a, that's an interesting point because he is a full participant in the Frasier reboot. He is. Yeah. So it's not like he's against reboots at all, but not this one. He said, so that was our second day. We, we finished up by having a very low key, you know, just barely anybody talking out loud at the uh, sing along. No, actually, it was quite raucous at the sing along. Good Lord, I was like, what are you talking about? I had Hosted no idea. By two members of the Glee cast. Yes. Um, that the sing along featured not only TV themes, but songs that had either been covered on a show or were just made for the show. Like did, a la like Smelly Cat for Friends. Like, did you know that Robin Sparkles had like three <laughs> complete songs? And so for those of you who don't remember, that is from How I Met Your Mother. It was funny. We had such a good time. It was definitely the time when you could like light your hair down again. They had pizza, popcorn, soda, wine. All kinds of stuff to just be like comfortable. They had um like glow, like what are those things like glow sticks you can right. make into like headbands and you can wear Little, these glasses. Like fidget toys. And, yeah, all kinds of stuff, which was like pretty perfect for all of us because by that time of the night, we were kind of fidgety and wanting to do stuff. All in all, it was a very good way for us to end our day. And I really felt like after the cheers panel, like I felt like full to the brim, you know, like, like we had been given like a full day of entertainment and things to think about in the entertainment industry like things that were going on concerns that were happening like it was it was a lot to pack into one day and i i felt it for sure you guys i hope you can stick with us for our continuing coverage of atx tv festival we will be back with you for day three this is caroline and this is paul 
Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please leave us a five-star rating so that others can find the podcast and listen as well. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you. Pod Clubhouse.